Hello and welcome back to the Joint Venture Podcast, Inspiratia Insights. My name is Oliver, Lead Analyst at Inspiratia, and I am joined today by our senior reporter, Zach Skidmore. Hello, Oliver. And making his debut on the podcast, we have our data analyst, Ashley Marzaman. Welcome, Ash. Hi, Oliver. Good morning. On this episode, we will be going over the latest news and all the things that we missed while we were away over Easter, uh, as well as taking a close look at the EU and the UK's differing approaches to the first round of hydrogen auctions, which the details have emerged over the past few weeks. And Ash is here to talk us through a very exciting sneak peek of what will be published in our next research report, RiskWatch. As usual, we will begin with the news. Zach, what have you got for us? Thank you, Oliver. There are several news stories that I'd like to highlight over the past week. The first one being an investment announced by the London Collective Investment Vehicle, which invested €137 million into a Macquarie Asset Management Energy Transition Strategy. So the manager has backed green platforms from the likes of Stone Peak, Quinbrook, Foresight and BlackRock, and the investment represents the first into a pure play energy transition strategy which supports newer technologies in the renewable sector, such as energy storage, clean transportation, hydrogen and carbon capture. So what does this move tell us about the um, investment strategies of people like CIV? So I'd say it represents a, a commitment to more niche technology, so emerging technologies within the market. Um, currently, mature tech such as solar PV and wind still hold a dominant share in overall investment. For example, in 2020, solar alone attracted 43% of the total investment in renewables, followed by onshore and offshore wind at 35% and 12% shares, respectively. In 2022, the share is much the same with renewable energy, which includes wind, solar, biofuels and other renewables, achieving a new record of $495 billion committed in 2022, which is up 17% from the year prior. Comparatively, electrified transport received a comparable investment with $466 billion spent in 2022, which was a 54% increase year on year, so indicating that that sector has been getting significant traction. However, other emerging tech, notably hydrogen, received considerably less with only a 0.1% share of the total $1.1 billion investment. This indicates a need for more funds from less mature technologies, as well as to other sectors beyond electricity, such as heating, cooling and system integration. Therefore, strategies such as Macquarie's will become even more critical in fostering investment in these lagging technologies. And bringing on key investors such as CIV demonstrates that they are getting more traction. So the second um, news story I'd like to highlight was um, the acquisition of Triton by Brookfield Infrastructure, which was the multi-billion dollar acquisition. Triton International, the world's largest owner and leaser of intermodal containers and a provider of transport logistics infrastructure. The acquisition was completed in a cash and stock transaction, valuing the company common equity at $4.7 billion and reflecting a total enterprise value of approximately thirteen point three. Billion. We were actually able to speak with Brookfield concerning the acquisition. They provide us with a few key details. Um, following the acquisition, Brookfield intends to maintain Triton's existing investment-grade capital structure and support the overall growth of the business. Brookfield indicated that it sees Triton as a key platform in pursuing opportunities in containers and critical equipment that support the functioning of global commerce. 
So why has Brookfield made this investment move into what some people would consider kind of borderline infrastructure? I'm um, talking directly with Brookfield. They push back on that belief, um, stating that Triton has a highly contracted asset base that provides predictable and stable cash flows at high margins and is a critical part of the backbone of global supply chains. They're kind of pushing back on the idea that just because it is a container company doesn't mean that it isn't key within the supply chain of a lot of infrastructure projects. Thank you, Zach. I think we've got some more news from the PPA side of the market. Yeah, so I thought I'd just do a quick PPA roundup. Um, there were three that really came to my attention this week. The first being Google, which continued their kind of PPA spree with deals in Belgium and the Netherlands. They inked two new deals in Europe. The first deal was with Brussels-based renewables developer Uluminous for a for 24 megawatts of power from two new onshore wind projects, which will be used to power its Belgian data center portfolio. The second deal is in the Netherlands with Eneco to offtake 153 megawatts of power from two new wind farms to power its data center. As I mentioned previously, it is kind of continuing a spree of um, PPA signings by Google. They signed several PPA deals with European-based renewable developers in the past month with several done with NG to power Google data centers in Germany, with the most recent deal signed in December. Additionally, the tech giant signed its first PPA with Orsted in the United States a couple months ago. The second PPA was between KGAL Investment Management and Polish cement producer Lafarge Cement Polska, who signed a 15-year power purchase agreement. The PPA will derive energy from the 35.2 megawatt Klassin wind project and the 27 megawatt Rywald wind farm, which were both commissioned in 2022. The projects will supply Lafarge with 230 gigawatt hours of electricity per year. So, And the final um, PPA was between Axpo and Borealis, who inked a second PPA in the space of six months. The PPA covers energy supply from the 30 megawatt Krolpon wind farm and will supply 100 gigawatt hours annually for the, and last at least eight years. And it comes on the heels of a 10-year PPA signed in December between the two companies that will provide Borealis with renewable energy generated by 60 megawatt Holtema wind farm in Sweden with delivery expected in January 2024. And just to provide a couple insights in just general PPA trends, um, Inspiratia, in its coverage of the PPA market, has observed several trends over the years so far. 49 PPAs have been signed within the European market, 12 tied to onshore wind projects, 17 to offshore wind projects, and 13 to solar projects. Major installations who signed PPAs include RWE's German North Sea Portfolio and the Hydrict Wind Farm off the coast of the Netherlands. Meta was a major off-taker with four agreements signed amongst a diverse pool of off-takers and overall tech companies have so far inked 17 agreements this year. Thank you so much for the PPA roundup, Zach. I think that that um, data that we use now is also going to be used in the Risk Watch report, which Ash will tell us about very soon. That's right. So moving on to hydrogen, um, Oliver's going to provide us a few details on a very um, interesting news story which came out of Portugal. Yes, that's right. So Portugal have been uh, prepping a European first in their uh, announcement last week that they're going to be launching uh, a round of hydrogen auctions. And the kind of innovative thing about this is they're going to be injected straight into um, Portugal's existing natural gas grid. 
The system will attempt to alleviate the issue of perfectly balancing the needs of individual consumers with the ability of a single producer by pushing it through this intermediate step of being on the gas grid. This will be achieved by the use of a guaranteed commercial intermediary. Uh, This intermediary is Gallup who will purchase hydrogen mixed with natural gas from producers before reselling it via the gas grid to meet the demands on the open market. Uh, This will provide suppliers with a guaranteed buyer and remove the need for a direct bilateral contract between a supplier and a consumer for Portuguese hydrogen projects. This first auction round is currently scheduled to take place in H2 2023 and this feeds into something that uh, I'm going to talk about later. We've got hydrogen auctions popping up all over Europe and we've got different approaches being taken at national levels and at the wider EU level. So, Oliver, there's been some controversy surrounding this auction. What are the major points of contention? Broadly, this has been welcomed by the hydrogen market because obviously you've got a, another route to market, another route for revenue to hydrogen projects, and that is welcomed. However, the controversy comes from that inclusion of mixing hydrogen with natural gas and that this guaranteed off-taker, Gallup Energia, will be um, accepting combinations of hydrogen with a fossil fuel. And that obviously opens the door for a certain amount of greenwashing in projects, the exact specifications and uh, regulations upon what will be accepted as part of this auction scheme have not been settled yet. So there are still a lot of questions around the environmental credibility of the process. However, as I say, this uh, first round is scheduled to get underway by the second half of the year, where several of those questions should be answered. Other issues around the auction process, obviously, are more technical about the potential for hydrogen leakage in an existing gas network, but uh, major figures within the Portuguese uh, gas grid have been quick to reassure the market that the system is either already uh, hydrogen ready or can be very easily retrofitted within the next few years. Great. Thank you for the news update, Zach. My pleasure. As mentioned, it's been a very busy few weeks for hydrogen projects in the EU and in the UK as both entities have been pushing forward their plans for hydrogen auctions in the coming months. In the UK, the last time this podcast went out was on the, as it was billed, Green Day, later relabeled to the Energy Security Day, when we saw a raft of policies being announced by the Department of Energy Security and Net Zero, including updates on on the Net Zero Hydrogen Funds competitions, where Strand 1 and Strand 2 awarded large pots of money for hydrogen projects in the form of grants. This scheme is going to develop into a hydrogen auction process by, if on the current trajectory, the end of 2023, where the full term should be released during Q3, and then leading on to contracts being entered into before the end of 2023. So Oliver, what's the market reaction to these announcements? In general, the reaction tended to be, if you were awarded a grant from the government, you had a good feeling about it. If you didn't, you didn't. So there were quite a few companies who uh, were on the receiving end of these Strand 1 and Strand 2 grants, including RES Octopus Renewables, ERM Dolphin, SSE Thermal, Statcraft, RWE, who were generally positive about the process. But many more developers of hydrogen projects within the UK who are looking for more than just a single grant for a relatively small project, but are looking for the stability of ongoing price support in the style of the CFD auctions, are still waiting on those details. Uh, It's been promised, the funding has been allocated, but the exact mechanisms of that auction are still very unknown. And speaking to players in the market who are still waiting on those bids, it seems 
like the idea that these contracts are actually going to be signed by the end of the year is now becoming increasingly unlikely. So how does the offering in the EU compare against the UK? So the EU has actually been pushing very hard on its own hydrogen auction scheme in the last few months. Um, from what was initially a later start, the European Hydrogen Bank launch uh, announced earlier this year was a significant uh, development, which has, I think, at least to some degree, started to bring a little bit of confidence back into uh, hydrogen in European investors. Although, as Zach was saying earlier, that investment is still much below where it needs to be if um, the EU and individual national hydrogen targets for green hydrogen are going to be met. So, the European Commission uh, unveiled its terms for the first round of hydrogen auctions. The first allocation round will be using an 800 million euro pot, so a substantial amount of money, from a total budget of 3.3 billion euro. The structure of these auctions will be uh, a single bid, 10-year fixed premium in the euros per kilogram of hydrogen produced. Uh, The single round auction is um, probably going to be the most effective way for the EU to do this. Uh, And it does set it in contrast to the much more in contrast to the much more open system uh, that, for example, the US has employed in the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, where it's granting flat tax credits to any project which uh, crosses that very strict line of both environmental sustainability and looking after local jobs, apprenticeships, or the other sort of more politically sensitive requirements. Uh, The big headline of the EU's hydrogen uh, auction announcement was, however, the top ceiling for price support will sit at €4 Euros per kilogram of hydrogen produced, which is around about $4.4. Now, this is very significant because the IRA's tax credit at its top end, if you fulfil all the requirements, only comes to $3 per kilogram of green hydrogen produced. Now, that was seen as the top end premium. That was the most generous scheme of any comparable scale that we had seen previously. And now the EU's ceiling has topped that. However, because of the auction process that will be used to attribute these bids and attribute this uh, support, it's likely that the average will be much, much below the ceiling price. But obviously, all that is to be figured out in the auction process to come. What sort of things will be required to enter the EU auction process? So there's a few things uh, that are going to be prerequisites, because obviously, as an auction it's going to be fully determined by the price. So unlike the US system, there won't be different levels of support for different qualifications. However, there will be quite strict entry requirements. So what these are exactly have not been uh, finalised. However, the current terms and conditions as drafted and published by the European Commission include letters of intent to sign PPAs for the purchasing of power and hydrogen purchase agreements agreements with off-takers to kind of give that security that you have um, both the power input and output. And this feeds in with something we've covered on this podcast before, which are the EU's changing standards when it comes to green hydrogen, what is counted as renewable hydrogen. And we mentioned this uh, on the podcast a few weeks ago. But one of those um, big changes uh, from the EU's point of view is that low carbon intensity grid systems, such as, for example, the French system, which relies heavily on nuclear, will be allowed to be classified as green if you use that electricity for producing hydrogen, so long as you top up the uh, power used with renewable PPAs. So there's huge potential for PPAs and hydrogen purchase agreements to be used in conjunction with each other under this system. Exactly how this is going to interact with some of the uh, national uh, support available, we've already talked about Portugal's uh, 
Glap Energia, who's going to be purchasing hydrogen centrally. Germany's got um, a somewhat similar system with the Hintco company. This is going to be um, a point that needs to be worked out on a country-by-country basis. Certainly, it seems like the EU is moving up the priority list where you're going to have lots of projects which are potentially eligible for support, both on the EU level and the national level. Thank you very much for the update. As mentioned at the top of the show, we are joined today by Ashley Marzaman, who has been working very hard over the past few weeks on helping to compile the data for Inspiratia's newest research report, RiskWatch. Ash, thank you so much for coming on. Can you give us an overview of what this report is all about? Thank you for having me, Oliver. So RiskWatch, in a nutshell, will provide a market outlook on how the growing renewables sectors will appeal to potential investors and alongside them, project developers, financial, and legal advisors. RiskWatch is the result of a collaborative effort between Inspiratia's analyst team and a data team, where I'm here as a representative of the latter, and we'll be describing the methodologies used to acquire, transform, and present the data used in this upcoming report. Our analyst team will then give a more in-depth account on what the report covers next week upon release. So with the data collection process, there are numerous factors that need to be considered, ranging from a country's political climate and economic policies, as well as the performance of its energy infrastructure. We can obtain statistical metrics from each, measure, calculate, and aggregate them into an index, which will then allow us to rank our top performing countries. Okay, so this has been quite the undertaking. Uh, I know that a hell of a lot of data has gone into this. Can you talk us through the process of uh, sort of finding these data sources that you're using and building up the models? Certainly. So the data sources come from both internal and external data sources. I will start with the external ones, where we have collected from various different sources, such as the IMF, the World Economic Forum, Our World in Data, IRENA, and Heritage Foundation. In short, trusted, internationally recognized bodies. 100%, exactly. And also in, this, in the data set, we've been using our own data that we've been collecting through our own news coverage and the work that you've been doing. Correct. What we have also done is integrated these external metrics with those from DataLife, our proprietary database. The data team at Inspiratio will, on a day-to-day basis, populate this with new announced projects in the renewable energy sectors, and we collect data points from, uh, from them, such as financing values, the megawatt capacities, who the project participants are, what type of project it is, for instance, a project finance deal, an M&A deal, auctions, PPAs, and so on. This allows us to measure additional interesting data points, such as the PPA capacity per country, and also take into consideration whether a project pipeline exists or is likely to emerge over the 12 coming months in the particular market. So help us get an idea of the kind of data that we are using for this report. What are the internal constructed metrics that we are uh, judging each country against? So what we have done is we have come up with seven different subcategories, where each of these consists of four further data points, some taken from external sources and others from our internal database. And all of these provide optimal coverage and, and provide an accurate reflection of market conditions while accounting for anomalies and gaps in the data. These subscores are calculated from an equally weighted average of the percentile scores from each data point, producing a single aggregate score where higher scores indicate more favorable investment conditions. Our overall score will thus be an equally weighted average of these seven subcategories, resulting in a combined score and ranking that reflects a country's aggregate performance across the key areas of investor interest. And to follow that, the seven categories are as follows. The first is investment openness, which tracks investments in the renewable sectors and electricity exports. The second is market size, which measures renewables capacity, consumption, and generation. 
The third will be policy support for renewables, which measures transition readiness from the World Economic Forum, business freedom, and PPA capacity measured from our internal database. Next, we have financing environment, which provides a private sector lender's outlook, so metrics such as financial system stability and domestic credit to the private sector. Next, we have legal framework, uh, which looks into the judicial independence, contract enforcement and permits, and investor protection. In other words, protecting minority investors. Following that, we have the macroeconomic outlook. These are the data points from the IMF, where we measure uh, GDP, both nominal and per capita, as well as a five-year forecast using time series data. And finally, we have institutional stability, which measures a country's political stability, corruption perceptions, and the rule of law. So I know you're here to represent the uh, data analyst side of the report, but could you give us an overview on the kind of topics and the structure of what information will be in this report, as well as the data? Uh, Certainly. So following this, the report will be divided into three chapters, where the first will go over a regulatory review of of the region as a whole. We will also rank the top and bottom countries and provide insights on each. So we will provide a country-by-country analysis. So in these country-by-country analysis, we're going to be looking all across Europe, yes? Correct. And we're going to be looking at some of the top performing and the bottom performing countries. Um, Without giving away too much about which is which, could you perhaps um, mention some of the countries which we've really gone in depth into? Certainly. Uh, We have examples such as the UK, we have the Netherlands, uh, the Nordic countries, obviously, and we'll also take a look at some Eastern European countries, uh, such as Estonia, uh, Turkey, and so on. So to conclude... Our analysts will go over this report in greater detail when the report is released next week. Ash, thank you very much for the teaser. I hope everyone's very excited to read that report. Um, I certainly am interested in seeing the whole thing myself. It's been a really big effort from across a lot of different teams here at Inspiratia. So um, do stay tuned and pick up the report when it's published. Keep your eye on your inbox if you're an Inspiratia subscriber. Thank you very much, Oliver. Thank you, Ash. Thank you so much for the update on that, Ash. And yes, as mentioned, we'll have the report authors around the podcast table next week to go into much more detail on the results and pick out the key analysis. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Um, I'd like to once again thank our contributors, Zach and Ash. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you, Oliver. We're very excited to be back after our break, and we've got plenty more to bring you in the coming weeks. Please stay tuned. Until next time, goodbye. Bye. Bye.